Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. Radio BX is a natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio BX. It's June 4th, 2020. I'm Yatza Frank with the Building Energy Exchange. Delivering high-performance buildings requires a host of changes, from more progressive energy codes and regulations to new design and construction processes. But both the process and the outcomes for high-performance buildings can be dramatically improved with the right materials intelligently applied. Our guest today is at the forefront of making the right materials available to those pursuing the highest quality buildings and educating practitioners on how to use them. Following more than 20 years as an architect, Ken Levinson co-founded 475 High Performance Building Supply, a company dedicated uh, to uh, products that, delivering products that transform simply green buildings into truly high performance buildings across North America. Ken has been a board member of both New York Passive House and the North American Passive House Network, and has been active in the development of annual conferences for both of those nonprofits, uh, a subject that we'll touch on throughout this program. He's also active in the Extinction Rebellion movement. Ken Levinson, welcome to Radio BX. Thank you, Yatsa. Um, Ken, as you began your career as an architect, I'm curious when you first began focusing on sustainability. Yeah, I mean, as an architect, I, I graduated from college in 1984 and, uh, you know, was welcomed, or I graduated from, sorry, I graduated from college in 1989. I graduated from high school in 1984 <laughs> um, uh, and walked into the recession of the early 90s, right, and, and struggling, struggling for work. I was in New York and Manhattan and... Um, and as a New York architect, definitely and young and 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 um, wanting to do the right thing generally, was interested in sustainability, but always struggled with how to like really make it meaningful part of uh, the profession, especially with the yeah. project selection and and what you know we weren't turning down jobs then, right? Or or right, deciding, right. trying to find those opportunities. Uh, what really changed was, I would say, my kind of awakening to the climate crisis. Um, yeah. And with like a lot of people in 2006, you know, as late as 2006, uh, with an inconvenient truth being uh, produced um, and going from an appreciation for, yeah, we should be doing this to, you know, holy crap, this is an emergency. We've got to change the way we're living today um and yeah. and from that pivot point the sustainability became much more concrete in my mind and seemed to be much more actionable um and when did you first become aware of passive house so out of that then over the next couple of years i was you know just searching the web trying to find any sort of um actions that we, I could take uh, to lower carbon emissions. So both personal habits, of course, uh, and professionally, and literally Googling around for low energy buildings and things like that, I came across uh, Passive House. I think yeah. there was a, a article in the New York Times at the end of 2019, that was, or 2018, 
in December of 2018, that was really one of the first um, things that put Passive House on the map in the United States. And interesting. out of that, uh, was able to find a training that was happening in 2019 and, and took the training in Massachusetts and it was on my way. Yeah, that's great. You've been instrumental in the development of both New York Passive House, uh, the nonprofit, as well as the North American Passive House Network. Tell us about the sort of roles of those organizations in our, in our community. So the Passive House Network uh, is really a, a nationwide American organization um, that is aligned with the International Passive House Standard, uh, PHI, in Germany. Yeah. Um, and really, it's looking at the unique thing with Passive House that we've seen in, in incubating and growing this um, organization and, and the efforts is that it's a global uh, movement. It's a global um, right. uh, sort of uh, self, uh, each supporting each other. And, and so practitioners from New Zealand to the UK to Canada United States, all over the globe, China, are all sharing information and, and benefiting from that global interaction. And NAPHN really felt that um, as an organization, it wanted to uh, encourage that and make that access more accessible to practitioners across the United States. And it's a very similar story with New York Passive House locally. Yeah. Um, and it very well suited uh, in New York because of the international uh, flair of it, the international flavor. Um, we're able to do that. And so having that connection from the very local to the regional, national, and international uh, gives really people, um, I think, not just really great technical uh, access to technical uh, knowledge and capabilities, but um, makes it uh, – feel like you're part of a global movement, which of course you are. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that because I realize um, in hearing you that that didn't really happen with LEAD. Um, I've been very involved with both LEAD and Passive House in, in a variety of ways uh, across my career. And I will say that with LEAD, it was almost all sort of American focused, even though people were using it abroad, even when they were using it abroad, there wasn't a sort of natural sharing. Um, those They still stayed kind of siloed. Um, and that's not the case with Passive House from day one. Um, and part, you know, there's re other structural reasons for that, but it is, it is really interesting. So at some point you transitioned to the creation of 475 high performance building supply. Um, that's a big change from specifying the materials <laughs> to selling them. Uh, how did that come about? Yeah, it was, a, it was a really crazy roller coaster kind of rocket ride. So, you know, you had uh, discovering Passive House in 2008, um, 2009, uh, uh, you know, getting some initial training and tr figuring it out. I think I meant the earlier dates I mentioned, I messed up by a decade. So I hope <laughs> switch it back. Um, so 2008, 2009, and was, I was very fortunate in New York to, to have some, some uh, clients who were open to trying out new things and, um, and were not the lowest budget, lowest common denominator sort of projects. And uh, there was a little bit of flexibility there to experiment. They wanted to make sure things were done right. And they were interested in the, the higher quality that Passive House was, would be able to provide. 
and so in doing these early projects, a number of uh, townhouse retrofits in Brooklyn, um, some other studies, uh, as a professional practitioner, was, became very um, aware of the lack of products in the American market, the lack of really technical knowledge in the American market. And so um, pretty quickly, you know, the conversation within the, the very small community at that point was like, how do we get more products? How do we make this more available? How do we share more knowledge? Um, and I was uh, working uh, with Floris Keverling Boosman, who's passed, who's a Dutch trained architect, a business partner at 475 now. Um, and he was helping with some uh, building science uh, stuff, blower door testing on some of the projects. And we realized that there was this hole in the market. And he was an architect working as a building science consultant, consultant and I was an architect. And we, we thought this is the moment. It was like having that moment where you see the future before the futures happen. <laughs> right. And it was like, this is going this way. Um, yeah. let's just jump. And so we both shut down our firms and we had a third partner at the time, Sam McAfee. Um, yeah. and we, we started this company and everybody thought we were a little bit crazy. Like everybody got it, but it was still <laughs> like, you're doing what exactly? Um, and it was actually really interesting among my architecture colleagues, which is the classic, uh, conversation where it's like, how could you like leave architecture and go do this other thing? <laughs> as kind of like how could you and then turn around and go how did you do it right (laughs) Um, (laughs) how did you get out of architecture um and uh of course we didn't leave architecture is still very much involved in it uh from this different angle and it's been exciting to to then um basically when we started the company it was like what made it uh very fluid and fun was like the idea that we're the customer right um what I would want as an architect is what we need to be providing. Um, And it made it just a a much richer, interesting experience than, than starting a business per se. Yeah. I mean, 475 is almost like a mission driven material supplier, which is a kind of interesting idea in and of itself because your materials that you provide, yes, they support high performance buildings broadly, um, but more specifically, you feature products that can be used in lieu of spray foams, which are highly toxic throughout their life cycle, if people are not aware of that, and also products that can be used in lieu of petroleum-based um, stuff and those with low embodied carbon emissions. Is this mission something that is actually baked into your like bylaws or corporate policies, or is it just a result of your personal priorities, you're in Fl- you and Flores? Yeah, no, I mean, that was really... Um important to us that we saw and in particular i mean we could narrow it way down it was like we saw the value of air tightness right in these buildings and yeah. house buildings and how this one simple fact drives so much in building performance and comfort in health in carbon emissions and energy right. use and carbon emissions so we we built the company to stay really laser focused super narrow um and then kind of grow out from there. And in terms of the mission, we knew that the market wasn't where we were at, right? Um, yeah. The market was miles away from Passive House. And um, the, the question for us was, how long would it take for the market to get to where we were so that we could really be a right. viable growing company? Right. Like, <laughs> right. were we a couple of years too soon? 
or were yeah. we like two <laughs> decades too soon, which would right. you know totally kill us. It's the classic startup conundrum, right? Like how how far <laughs> a, across is the valley of death? Exactly. <laughs> at the beginning, yeah. Exactly. That's fascinating. And so um, we really and to to make a go of it. Uh, you know, we decided we need to focus on Passive House. That was where the strength of this was. Um, and everything revolved around education and training and yeah. making sure that the professionals were comfortable and were able to use these materials. Uh, ultimately, um, it wasn't in our bylaws, but in the mission statement and everything that we were baking into investors as we were trying to raise right, money right. To, to build the company was about market transformation that we if, unless we were being an active catalyst to transform the market to something else um, and be disruptive in that, help be disruptive in that way, um, we were kind of wasting our time. Uh, it yeah. was just another business. And so that really uh, had to be front and center. Yeah. My sense is that the understanding that building science is actually really important is growing in our community. And I think you've probably played no small role in that, but also that specific knowledge about building science is growing within the community, particularly the architectural community as well. Is that, is that your sense of things? Um, and how, how do you, how, if that is, how has that manifested itself most clearly to you? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I think it's really encouraging and exciting to see um, the conversations that are happening between architects, consultants, engineers, and builders um, about, construction and details and the quality of construction and what the expectations are. The business as usual was really pretty crappy construction and everybody kind of went along with it because that's yeah. the way it always was done. And, and you want me to actually think about what I'm doing? Well, that's going to cost a whole lot more money. Yeah. So let's yeah. not even go there. Right. Um, so uh, the conversation, what super exciting um, about passive house is the, um, how it really, uh, you know, intersects with different levels of knowledge yeah. and, and, and practice. And so as an architect, it allows you to get back into the craft of building in a way and deal with the fundamental basics. So it's not, oh my God, that mechanical engineering class I've got to take and, yeah. you know, all these numbers and everything. It's about, um, you know, bringing together these basic architectural elements dealing with the, the building fabric itself to make high performance. And so the architects, many more architects are much more um, uh, uh, find a foothold in that. There are different ways in and can, can appreciate that and have much uh, more interesting conversations with contractors and the contractors can, can find these different ways in and actually bring much more value to the table. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's very encouraging. I wouldn't say, you know, it's a groundswell or avalanche or anything, but it's definitely moving. Um, yeah. I mean, it is an exciting time. And I think, you know, there's a sort of, uh, obviously then maybe there's a chicken and egg with sort of pass files giving prominence and, and legislation getting more progressive, but those two things happening together, um, there's definitely some synergies there. Um, let's talk, um, Let's talk a bit about some specific products that our audience 
types of products anyway that our that our audience may not be um, aware of. I mean, I think about you, you mentioned air tightness. I mean, when I was in architecture school at University of Oregon, I guess I graduated in '95. At that time, you know, that was a school, you know, that thankfully actually taught you how to build buildings, not just theorize about them like some architecture schools. Um, but even then, like at that time, you know, the the, your control was this kind of inert vapor barrier and you basically you know chose which side of the insulation it went on based on the climate um, but vapor control is a lot more sophisticated now right um, I'd be interested to hear you kind of talk about mm -hmm. that about where that's headed um, sure yeah and I would say I mean I was also a product of well I, I came out of uh, art school at Pratt Institute and it was taught architecture was taught as art and very little building science knowledge. And even in my, I would have to say my professional background, um, you know, in New York City, you just didn't have that much exposure to it. Um, and it was really grappling with uh, all the things around passive house and, and sustainability, higher performance that, that my yeah. education really took place around those issues. So it was very, um, you know, hand in hand with a lot of people in the profession. You, I mean, before you actually answer my original question, that's interesting you say that because what you're doing now is you're sort of providing for other people the process that you went through, um, which is which is key. Yeah, yeah, it's very much like uh, just trying to trying to help ourselves is you know the what we think will will work out there. Um, yeah, and uh, you know it's interesting. I mean, building on many decades of research, um, you know, going back to the 70s uh, and the early super insulated buildings um, all the way through, there was definitely like fits and starts and, and really good things that happened <laughs> and kind of spectacular failures along the way. And we have that history, fortunately, to, to look back on and benefit from. And, and what's happened, I think, in the last decade is a real synergy between, you know, high performance materials generally that exist yeah. in our society um, and applying them into more rigorous scientific research around buildings. I mean, looking back at some of the building science, to me, it feels a little bit like the stepchild of, of like really laboratory science. Um, but that, but that has stepped up over the last couple of decades um, to be to be much more rigorous, and so um, it's not it's much less about um, you know what had been done, kind of like old wives' tales and, <laughs> yeah. and things like that. It's kind of the mythology. Oh, yeah, the buildings need that. to breathe, and we need a vapor barrier. Right. Everybody talks about a barrier, um, and really getting into. Uh, you know, how buildings are organically functioning and how the materials are helping or hindering their inherent ability to, right. to be durable and long lasting. And I think the vapor barriers um, are a key, key part of that and the air barriers um, that could be one and the same or separate. Um, and, and the different buildups that you have with those um, and the insulation materials. And the big, the big thing is as we go to more heavily insulated assemblies uh, in colder climates, they tend to stay colder longer and colder things are wetter. So you have an inherent risk in one sense of moisture damages. Um, but if you're applying the control layers and the materials in, in a sound way, 
you're you're mitigating that risk, right? And you're um, uh, you're um, actually making something that's far more durable. And some end. of these vapor control barriers now actually change depending on the climate. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a, a, a smart vapor retarder where the vapor variability changes so that as the moisture levels, the basic idea is that in the, the, they're, they're inboard of the insulation, the, the primary insulation layer. And in our cold climates in the wintertime, you want to prevent the outward vapor flow, uh, the vapor drive going outward. You want to prevent interior um, humidities from entering that enclosure. Um, where it would condense, uh, turn into water, and and presumably cause moisture damages. Um, you have a relatively low uh, medium uh, median uh, humidity level between the the cold right. side and the warm side um, in the winter time, and it's, so it's relatively vapor closed, and it can be quite vapor closed um, to prevent that wetting in the winter time. In the summertime, you have generally much higher humidity level around sure. the vapor retarder. And as those humidity levels rise and they approach um, damaging levels of humidity, of moisture content, the, the fabric opens up, the, the vapor barrier becomes more permeable and allows the, the, the moisture to move through it um, and prevents uh, it from staying wet. So you prevent wetting in the winter, you allow drawing in the summer and it kind of like goes through this um, flow of, of rising and falling, but over time it drops and drops and drops, uh, giving what we call uh, basically a buffer. And on the insulation side now, there's a lot of other options outside of just your basic kind of foam-based um, board materials that we've all so familiar with. Talk to us about the options there that are kind of coming into our market. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting to, you know, so of course the foam is very much dominated in terms of being a cheap, accessible yeah. material, um, uh, the foam boards for wrapping buildings and whatnot. Uh, fiberglass is, is, is growing in uh, use and acceptance as well, and, and fiberglass boards, um, which is, is definitely a step in the right direction. We have mineral wool from stone wool. Um, which is another beneficial beneficial product, and then we have insulations made from wood fiber, um, which has benefits in that each of these other products, our fiberglass and mineral wool, are better than foam in terms of toxicity, in terms of embodied carbon. Wood is a step yeah. further in that direction, um, where you can actually then create a carbon negative building uh, quite readily given a, a number of, of of factors in that uh that the, the wood fiber board is holding a, enough carbon um to offset a lot of the other construction that has gone in yeah there's a lot of, i mean there's a lot of options yeah. now so i was just going to say that we are really heartened and excited by the growth of the wood fiber insulation it's it's been one of those things where the air tightness was from the beginning, very obvious and needed with Passive House, but you right, can use right. any insulation, right? And embodied carbon isn't baked into right. the Passive House standard in terms of a metric. Right. Um, 
but as more and more people are thinking about it um, and it's becoming more available and more known, we're finally, finally starting to see real movement in that, um, yeah. in that area. And it's really encouraging. Uh, and we see more uh, interest from the manufacturing side as well as the, the customer side. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I may have said this on another program, uh, but recently I was in uh, a conversation, I think on a program, uh, and usually when people talk about decarbonizing buildings, they're almost always just talking about electrification. Um, that's the way we've been using that word right. for a few years now. But recently I've heard people, developers, using the word decarbonization to also mean driving down their embodied carbon, which is an amazing kind of shift, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, to see happen in real time. Um, I think that that's definitely the next uh, frontier. Yeah. We see it in, within the past fast community, a really quick growing appreciation that we need to deal with the embodied carbon side. It's not good enough to just deal with the operational energy. And um, you know, one of the things to mention with the, with the conference coming up in a few weeks that starts on the 24th, um, we have a couple of sessions dedicated to the embodied carbon issue, to the materials uh, selections that, um, that are happening, um, that are becoming more and more available, as well as calculating uh, the embodied carbon. And there's a new tool out that's being prepared for the American market that actually is a plug-in into the PHPP. Oh, wow. um, that is the uh, passive house energy modeling tool um, that will calculate the embodied carbon within the same model. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, I think the ability for the passive house community to kind of also easily um, sort of begin to focus on embodied carbon, I think has to do with the fact of passive house being a very empowering um, tool for, for architects and, and other practitioners, engineers as well, um, in a way that a lot of other standards kind of aren't. Um, and I'm not surprised that as new things like embodied carbon um, come into play, this community is going to be, um, you know, much more, uh, you know, able to be more opportunistic about, you know, you know like knuckling down and figuring that out as it, as it, as it plays into their projects. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with that. So um, just thinking also about all the various materials, uh, windows are an area that, I mean, I've, we've seen just a massive increase in the availability of very high performance units. Do you think it's, is it just passive house that's driving that or, um, or that what other forces are at play um, kind of with windows? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think passive house is certainly driving it um, globally, I would say. Um, so in, in China, for example, you know, you have whole new practically cities that passive house <laughs> cities being built and massive window manufacturers now in China, uh, specifically uh, coming out of the ground to do passive right. house certified right. uh, windows, yeah, uh, which is incredible. And, and passive house has helped drive the European market yep. to a large extent over the past couple of decades. In the American market, I think what we've seen in New York in particular is a confluence between um, issues around acoustics and comfort and, and passive house. So passive house, I think, made the market uh, aware that this was actually possible, that this wasn't, you know, you didn't have to buy million dollar windows 
you know, golden, golden windows, uh, custom made, you know, by, you know, the super old, <laughs> old family builders, um, that, uh, that this was readily available, essentially. And with that, you had this nice synergy, I think, between the leading edge of the higher end of the market, being able to, to uh, create a demand that maybe was doing some passive house, but mostly, mostly not, mostly your typical sound yeah. issues. And we see the window manufacturers really, I don't know if they're picking or choosing. I don't know that they need to, but a lot of them are like, yeah, yeah, we do passive house. That's kind of like, that's a chunk of our business, but we use these passive house windows and we're like in the big, wider multifamily market right. just because they're better quality. Um, so, and as the regulations now are going towards local law 97 and everything, um, you know, it's yeah, getting baked yeah. in. No, it's, it's been incredible to see, you know, the difference in our own house in Brooklyn. You know, we have, you know, some windows that we installed, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago that were you kind of, I won't name manufacturers, but, it, you know, one of your kind of classic big, you know, national manufacturers and they're fine. Um, but then all of our other windows, we, a few years ago, were able to we had to replace all of them. And so we were able to choose passive house windows because there were so many options on the market. The cost had come down so much. It was a a very nominal increase when you're replacing all your windows to start with. And the difference is just absolutely incredible. Uh, I mean, I, we have an uninsulated brownstone and in winter, my window, the surface of my window is warmer than the surface of my wall (laughs) because, you know, it's just brick, right? (laughs) So um, it's astonishing. And the acoustics you mentioned is a huge transformation, uh, especially in New York. And like a lot of houses, you know, there's rooms in our house that don't have any heating or cooling, right? They're kind of end rooms at the the, the ends of the stairs kind of thing. And those places were yeah. virtually uninhabitable in winter, for instance, you know, and now they're perfectly comfortable, um, which is a big, big change. Yeah. Yeah. And I would even say like a typical, like newer build where you might expect a, a higher quality of construction. Um, yeah. It's amazing that uh, passive house construction everybody's worried about those few extra inches of insulation it's taking away from my floor area and you know in manhattan or new york city generally every square inch but the reality is is that that window allows you to live right up to that window um and it actually like you're describing in the comfort it actually allows you a larger area of comfort and yep. and use of the space um so uh, it's really, it's quite interesting. It takes back, it gives back more than it takes, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, look, our, our bed is situated so that, you know, one side is next to the window and one side is not. And in winter, we used to argue about it, right? Not a, not a problem anymore. So it's a, it's a, um, yeah, yeah. Marital relief as well as everything else. So um, ventilation is also an area where, I feel like largely speaking, the design community is pretty ignorant about uh, ventilation issues, but this is a place where some real advances are happening. And I know that you, you've been, you're involved in a lot of these products. Could you talk about some of those sort of advances in, in ventilation and how that's sort of impacting projects that are coming to you for products? Um, sure. I think, I mean, I, I will say though, um, we have to admit, and we, there's a session in the conference on ventilation specifically in the quality of the components, certified components. 
um, and, and performance parameters around it. Because even within the passive house community, it's kind of an afterthought almost. Um, that may be a little too strong a phrase, but um, it's really people don't appreciate how powerful uh, an effect the ventilation system has on, on comfort, on health, on they may they may get it, but they don't really appreciate it. And then on at the energy performance of the building, um, and what you see are are when people get it, um, they really want components. Ultimately, the short answer is they people are asking for certified, you know, Passfast Institute components because they're assured of the performance level and that you can get ninety percent heat recovery that you can have a level of comfort without any additional heating to that in the winter. Um, uh, that's very good. And um, so I think, um, you know, right now what, what is interesting is, uh, well, I think in New York as well, you know, there's been a lot of movement to uh, high efficiency um, uh, energy recovery yeah. ventilators as well. So you're, you're recovering some of the moisture yeah. um, and, and helping with the, the humidity, the humidity issues in both directions too dry in the winter too too humid in the summer. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting to see all the different research that's happening now. Uh, there's another session dealing with this in the conference on COVID-19 and the whole issues around indoor um, uh, yeah. transmission um, of the virus. And, and around health in general, um, indoor air quality health. Uh, and, and that comes not just from the component end of it, but the design of the system and, and how it's operating. So I think there's just a lot more, there is a growing awareness and, and a lot more interest there. And there's more components uh, available. Um, there's even a Chinese, Chinese oh, really? one that's gonna come. Because most um, of the stuff that's been yeah. coming now has been from Europe, almost all of it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's virtually all from Europe. Um, there's some Canadian as well, and the the Americans unfortunately are not have not really built the quality. Um, typically, I should say I should put the big asterisk next to that. But that's with the exception of Intacity, uh, which is the American company, which is a new uh, company um, that started by building PHI certified units. And they're really leading leading effort there in a lot of ways. One of the things I've seen is that our architects that feel empowered by the kind of building science aspects of Passive House do run into the ventilation stuff. And that immediately feels like, oh, I'm getting into mechanical engineering, which is a place I'm uncomfortable. That's probably why I chose architecture yeah. instead of engineering school in the first place. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but it's not as complicated, you know. Honestly, it's fair um, because it is that it is um, it's simple in some ways, but in other ways, um, you know, you can make mistakes and yeah. um, and you need you need to be careful. You need to have good engineers um, of course. helping you or, or or companies suppliers. You know, and four seven five does a fair amount of education around that as well. I think with all of these things, the education component is just critical. Um, it's not absolutely agree. It's it's goes hand in hand. I mean, one of the things that we're thinking more and more about is that a lot of our education. Well, it, it doesn't need to just focus on how to apply systems or processes. We also need to be providing information that 
sort of corrects some of those old wives tales as you describe them you know it's like there's a lot of like inertia to these yeah. ideas and, and one of them of course is around airtightness like one of the things you hit run up against constantly is people saying well if you make it airtight then aren't you gonna have a moldy interior and it's like well that's this is not how it works like it, it so you have to go through this whole process of <laughs> describing that to them um and that's it's really really important to educate right. people about that stuff because whatever they've read about sick building syndrome from things that were built in the 70s um is what sticks in their craw so yeah yeah and we've seen with the covid-19 you know the i think the, the folks who are predisposed to their you know have this um set of beliefs already in place they're looking for anything that reinforces that so with covid-19 is like oh you can't have an airtight building anymore because of COVID-19. That's yeah. not good for passive house. <laughs> That's like, come on. Yeah. Um, but let's get serious here. Definitely there are things that need to be investigated, but airtightness is not the issue um, no. per se. Uh, so we actually, for the, that session, we had a little bit of fun with it to be provocative and, and calling it, you know, why does COVID-19 hate <laughs> passive house? Right. Um, and we're trying to, uh, associate COVID-19 yeah. with the passive house haters. Um, and, uh, <laughs> well, it, and, and really doing, but really seriously though, do a, don't, a gut check on that and say, Hey, let's really talk through the issues. There's a lot of stuff to be figured out, but um, yeah. I mean, ventilating properly requires a tight envelope. That's just, that's, those are just facts. Um, and right. And it seems to be the case that, uh, a lot of the elements that Passive House sort of supports are the elements you need for to mitigate viral transmission in buildings. Um, so th those two things seem... It provides the foundation definitely. to do that. Yeah. So uh, talking a little bit about the conference, um, <clears throat> uh, I know you've been heavily involved in its development, but it's... Um, it, you're doing it, uh, the format is really different, right? Not just virtual, but also you've kind of broken it up across days. Could you talk about that format, how that's going to work? I think people would be interested to hear that. I know I was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, exciting to to talk about it. Um, since, you know, we decided to nine weeks ago or so, it seems like <laughs> a lifetime ago, um, decided, well, we have enough time. Our conference was coming in June. Let's flip it to virtual. And we did not know what we did <laughs> yeah. not know. Um, it was the unknown unknowns that really like killed me this last sure. nine weeks. Um, but for a great learning experience, um, we landed with a company um, that was, you know, very much uh, don't, we started out wanting to move an in-person conference online and just kind of, you know, yeah. go from here to there. Um, through this process, we realized that, uh, that's not what we needed to do. That's not what we should be doing, but really look to how we can optimize the online environment um, yeah. and bring that out and, and forget about, again, it's all the preconceptions about what a conference is or what it needs to be to be successful and to let go of all of that. And um, it's been a real process in terms of bringing along the presenters and the sponsors and everything. Um, and where we landed was, uh, the, the sessions are all going to be pre-recorded, uh, which was not our yeah. inclination initially to do that, right? Um, but what we discovered was with the pre-recording, you have a much, you ultimately have actually a much richer experience that's possible uh, between the presenter 
and the the viewer and and the different attendees yep. it's kind of counterintuitive but the the reality is that it the broadcast of the pre-recorded presentation or discussion panel discussion um which has a light edit to it um they're back in online during that session and they're in conversation and doing q a with the audience from the beginning to the end of the session not just in the last 10 minutes where we're going to squeeze in a few questions here um so you have a lot more breathing time to, to have that. You can layer in other information, links, yeah. uh, supplemental information. You can bring in other experts. Um, we can have other people um, having a very, um, uh, you know, um, not curated per se, but cultivated conversation where you can bring out a lot more. So we think that the interaction is going to be actually much higher than what you would have at an in-person conference. Um, and you need to invest in that. So it's, it's about making sure that there are people in that conversation who are, who are helping that along, keeping things in, in a good place and, and informative. Um, the other thing that we did was we were going to, you know, kind of recreate it and doing a two-day conference in two days um, online. And we came back around, it was just like, you know, this is crazy. Everybody says like, right. you don't <laughs> want to do that. And then we were looking at like, well, how, do we cut it, the conference in half? Um, how, how are we gonna do this? And we finally brainstormed and said, you know what, let's just blow this thing up and go, we're gonna start on June 24th. We're going to make it between one and 4 p.m. So it's a reasonable yeah. amount of time. And it's at a time of day that it can be from coast to coast during, um, easy business hours. Nobody has to be at a weird time. Um, and then we're going to go every Wednesday from one to four for the next five weeks after. Wow. So six total weeks. And for the sponsors, it was interesting because the idea is that it's not yeah, just yeah. one bite at the apple. You could, you have time to come back and re-meet people, uh, reconnect, have multiple chances and, and be able to yeah. present different things for the attendees as well to be able to process the information um, and, and hopefully connect and reconnect with people over the course of the six weeks. And for us as organizers that we can see what's working and may, maybe we'll tweak things as we go, or, you know, we'll see. Um, who knows, but. Will attendees be able to connect with one another um, on, on, in between the days of the conference somehow, or that'll really only happen in that sort of one to four period? Yeah, we don't have anything formally scheduled. We're in the middle right now of, of working informally with um, the Passive House Accelerator and the Global Passive House yeah. Happy Hour that happens sure. every Wednesday evening. So that will be following, and we're kind of looking at doing some, um, you know, bonus content. Um, from that day or, and twisting it in some way and having a different type of experience with the, the conference content. And what, um, what sessions are you sort of particularly excited about across those six weeks? Well, I think, you know, it's hard to, to, which, which, to which child is your here, favorite. But, well, I would say, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but I would say what I'm really excited about this year, we're focusing on building developers and owners and so we have three roundtable sessions, one on the first day. Uh, the, 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 the second roundtable will be on the third day of the conference, and then the third on the fifth day of the conference, so every other week. The first 
there's going to be a handful of owner developers uh, in the discussion, um, all pre-recorded again. The, the first one is going to be on um, getting to yes. What was their internal process? What was the criteria? What is building owners did they need to go through to actually say, yes, we're going to do a passive house? Um, and speaking from their own experience, not, you know, what we're planning on doing. Um, and then the second one is like, okay, how did they make a business out of this, right? How did they actually execute the project, build the team, have the budgets, the milestones? How did they market it to their future customers to, to fill the buildings? Um, like what was the value, at, what was the messaging going in that direction then? And then the third one is um, occupancy and monitoring and operation management. Like how are you educating the occupants? What are you doing in terms of monitoring and, and optimizing the operations over time? Uh, so we think that's going to be a really rich yeah. set of sessions, different owners in each set, all kinds of backgrounds, coast to coast. Um, Great. Really. And then owners in the audience uh, and have that uh, during the session, you know, that chat conversation Q and a, and then we're going to out of those three sessions actually issue uh, eBooks, which will take information, not just from the conversation, but we'll take oh, information wow. from the chat and other resources, we will sort of yeah. curate that all together and put it back out to the attendees as a, as a resource. Um, yeah, and we're really hoping to then activate, you know, the owner um, developer community, the way that we have, uh, you know, been somewhat successful in the policy area. Um, this has been a great conversation. So the first, the date of the, the first day it starts on Wednesday, June 24th. June 24th. And what's the web address for the for registration? It's um, naphnconference.com. Great. So to sort of finish up, uh, I started asking uh, all of our guests on Radio BX this last question when we were only <laughs> in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and facing a looming recession. <laughs> but now we can add uh, the protests that are sort of sweeping across the nation in opposition to police violence against people of color. In these sort of challenging times and with all this, this stuff happening around us, uh, what, is, what is it that's giving you hope right now? Yeah, I had to laugh when I, I saw that. Um question only that, not to be flip about it um but uh you know it's one of those really tough things right and so i uh volunteer yeah. with extinction rebellion and do a bunch of um presentations around that i could give a plug i'm doing a, a heading for oh, extinction wow. talk tomorrow night um online um and uh but one of the things we talk about is there's this nasa scientist mm -hmm. kate marvel who has this uh who's pretty out, outspoken she's at columbia at the yeah at the earth center there and um uh she says i have no hope <laughs> there's no reason to be hopeful um and hope actually isn't a, a useful construct right things are so messed up that um you know and and i would add to that optimism also and i'm a very yeah. optimistic person naturally optimism isn't a useful framing anymore um because it's just so messed up and um, but what she said, what Kate Marvel says is, what you need is not hope. What you need is courage, and the courage to act without any hope. Um, and so, uh, 
I think that's kind of what keeps me going is that as, as messed up as everything is, is that you, 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 you know, you want to realize that we have a great opportunity here. We can really change the world and make our climate crisis much yeah. less bad than it's going to be as things stand. We can change our society and make it much less racist um, and, and much more just. Stay um, safe out and, there. And all these different things. But yeah, to me, and not to be smart alecky about it, but it's just like, it's about like doing it and not worrying about being hopeful because it's just too damn depressing. It's really, even if you get hope, it's, it's gone like that. <laughs> um so that's great that's my we need we need courage we definitely we definitely need lots of yeah, that. courage and and recognize the opportunity recognize the opportunity that we have i think a lot of people are like you know the problem is i've talked about this in these other talks we talk to friends and stuff you know they say well i'm not hopeful you know i'm not optimistic and when you when you acknowledge that in that way it's removing your agency to act, right? You're, you're giving yourself an out to say, well, I'm not optimistic. There's nothing I can do. We can't change it. But it's really with the courage is, is the idea that we have an opportunity to do something really meaningful and, and we should not be giving that up. Yeah. I think optimism shouldn't be, um, you know, a should shouldn't be about the status of of the future but about your own courage in the face of you know what you're confronted with optimism to me is is about a state of mind um i choose to be (laughs) i don't you know i'm not i'm not i'm not optimistic because i think everything's going to be fine but i choose to be because i have to this is what we have to do we have to make it we have to make it better on all fronts so Right. It's, it's part yeah, of your mental exactly. exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Ken, this has been great. I really appreciate your time today. I hope the, co- I hope the conference goes fantastic. Thank um, you. I know BX is doing everything we can to get the word out about it. And we're really, really excited to participate myself. Um, and uh, I really appreciate the time today and thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And thanks everyone to join today to listen in. Um, And we look forward to seeing you at future Radio BX episodes and other BX programs and programs of our partners, North American Passive House Network and others. Uh, Thank you all very much. Have a great day and everybody stay safe out there.